already know there's no better way to get around than by following the U.S. Army War College Battlefield Guide series. We'll return with the editor and originator of that series, Harold W. Nelson, former Chief of Military History, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Talking today with Harold W. Nelson, former Chief of Military History of the United States Army and co-editor of the U.S. Army War College Guide to the Battle of Gettysburg and subsequent battle guides. Hal, you were telling us in our first segment about how you and Jay Lewis came to uh, transform the, the notebooks you used to guide uh, students and young officers and civilians at uh, in government around battlefields, uh, these eventually become transformed into books that have been published. And uh, you did several besides the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, is that right? Yes. Uh, we were doing other battlefields at the time. We had a little staff ride program uh, on a voluntary basis for war college students that was uh, quite popular. And so basically the uh, first uh, round, if you will, of those books uh, – followed us as we developed our techniques and knowledge of those battles. So the next thing we did was the Maryland campaign of 1862, uh, South Mountain, Harper's Ferry, and the Battle of Sharpsburg or Antietam. And then we put uh, Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville in one volume because uh, that's basically the way we were doing it, uh, you know, taking an old Army bus down to Fredericksburg and doing one battle one day and the other battle the next on a cheap Charlie weekend uh, for a bunch of interested uh, students. And then uh, one of those interested students, Matt Spruill, 
uh, was assigned down to Atlanta and had a real passion for Chickamauga and extended the method to that headquarters. And uh, we basically took his notebooks and went down to Chickamauga on our own and with him and uh, published that in his name. And then as I was becoming chief of military history, uh, Jay and my uh, uh, replacement officers had a great opportunity to do uh, Shiloh, which we had started. And they did a fine job of finishing that. And then Vicksburg, which I can't claim to have had much of a hand in at all, uh, because Jay and I had really only gotten out there a couple of times, although I'd been on the battlefield on my own maybe once or twice in addition. And so we were uh, finishing uh, Sherman's campaign for Atlanta, which ends at Kennesaw Mountain, given the development around Atlanta itself. Uh, we were finishing that as we retired. And we've just now gotten that back on track. So uh, there were some issues about moving to digital maps and what the digital maps would look like and some other, you might say, production issues. But that's now all been resolved. And so uh, University Press of Kansas is pretty far along on that, although we haven't indexed it yet. So it probably will be, you know how university presses can be. And you know, This is not meant as a criticism. It probably will be another year before that comes out. And in the meantime, uh, the Gettysburg book is obsolete because... Uh, because of the general management plan at Gettysburg, some one-way roads were uh, reversed, and the new visitor center will be the center from which directions need to be uh, given in that book. And it is just now under construction. So I'm in the midst of finishing up the new second edition of uh, Gettysburg, which won't be that much different, but we'll take out the old tactical appendix and put in the East Cavalry Battlefield, uh, which wasn't in the first uh, first edition. Well, that that is welcome news. So sometime maybe in 2007 we can look forward to uh, the Atlanta campaign and at some point also uh, the second edition of Battle of Gettysburg. You mentioned, uh, I think you probably overstated to suggest the first edition is obsolete because for the benefit of the very few listeners who, who don't have a copy, uh, your approach is to use snippets from the, the OR, the, the actual right. reports of the officers who were there, supplemented with uh, these marvelous, very small-scale maps, uh, topographical maps with the, the contour lines and the woods marked in. And uh, the, the contours haven't changed, and the OR hasn't uh, uh, changed. No, it's it's the directions that make it's it. It's just change going. You don't want to go the wrong way down a road. <laughs> yeah, changed. when you claim it's a guidebook and you've got the one-way road going the wrong way, that could be a problem. Uh, that's what makes it obsolete. So you're you're exactly right. Much of the text uh, will remain unchanged, and where it is changed, it's only because we've found it a different account in the official records that we like even better, or in the case of the great Chamberlain uh, after-action report on Little Round Top, we have actually, in the Chamberlain papers, found his first draft, and since that's such a, you might say, uh, icon on the battlefield, we decided to juxtapose some of the text from the first draft against the second. Uh, There's another uh, agenda in those books that isn't clear even to the Army anymore, but when we published them, uh, when we started the series, we were trying to build an after-action review culture into the Army uh, that would be uh, a very candid 
and helpful way of looking at uh, actions that had just happened, especially in a training environment, so that we could extract full value from training by actually uh, discovering our errors and not repeating them. And so the after-action reports of the uh, Civil War era are not quite that candid, as you know even better than I, because you're far more versed in the Civil War than I. But uh, it did remind young officers that they were part of a culture where you were expected to be accountable for your decisions and your execution of decisions made by yourself or people above you. And so uh, that's still a theme, but it's uh, not nearly as important now as it was 25 years ago. Well, that touches on an interesting point, though, that that uh, you've talked about staff rides, about bringing uh, our, everyone from ROTC students to active officers to the Secretary of the, of the Army on, on these visits to battlefields. And the question uh, uh, that might naturally come to mind is, well, that's all you know. Fine. It's good to know our heritage and, and, and so forth. But we're talking about uh, rifled muskets with a range of a few hundred yards. We're talking about muzzle-loading artillery. Uh, talking about soldiers fighting on horseback. Of what possible relevance can this be to the 21st century army? Well, first, uh, you uh, you're right to say there's a legacy concern. And so for uh, Army officers, uh, it's not unusual for them just to want to get in touch with that particular set of roots. And they have read, just like any other uh, interested professional, uh, have read some history, so they like to get out on the ground. So in some cases, there is just that uh, curiosity about the past. But uh, generally speaking, you can put people into situations where they encounter the difficulty of making decisions with incomplete information, where they encounter the confusion that uh, follows the loss of a key leader, where the communication style of a leader talking to someone who's a new subordinate uh, uh, get in the way of, uh, of uh, proper execution. So at Gettysburg, for instance, uh, even uh, the most modern general uh, can feel some compassion for the command group when Reynolds is killed uh, in the midst of trying to execute a plan that has not yet been fully articulated. Now, we can talk about how much more is done now for situational awareness and for redundancy and communication and all that, but... Uh, the point is that uh, when a high headquarters gets uh, zapped, uh, everybody has a little trouble figuring out exactly what we were trying to do and exactly the status of everybody who's acting. And uh, when Lee is telling to telling Yule take that hill if practicable, uh, we can talk about the difficulty the senior engenders in the mind of a junior if there is a lack of clarity and precision in the order and the described end state. So uh, it's not too hard to get good conversations going with uh, modern leaders, uh, even if they're running a corporation. They don't even have to be military guys. Well, that's that's something you and I did in common uh, a few years ago. We were on one of these 
uh, trips to Gettysburg for, for corporate leaders. I understand you do that uh, regularly nowadays. I it? do uh, to lots of places. Just got back from France with a great group of corporate people at Normandy. So are there lessons for for the business world in, in what happened at Gettysburg or what happened at Trilo? Well, I think so, uh, obviously, since I do it all the time. One is what I was just talking about, the uh, Lee-Yule relationship. Uh, Yule's a brand-new Corps commander. Uh, he's never commanded a Corps in combat before the first day at Gettysburg. And we all know the old interpretation is if Jackson had been there, he would have known what Lee meant. Well, it isn't Jackson that Lee is talking to, and a good senior executive uh, doesn't make that mistake. And um, it, this is true in the corporate world as well as it is in uh, the military world. Uh, people do need to be reminded of the communication needs of their subordinates, and that's just one example. Another is that the other extreme, um, uh, Strong Vincent, not yet a general, has told... Uh, uh, Chamberlain, a regimental commander, who's a brand-new regimental commander, too, by the way, uh, on the second day of Gettysburg, hold this ground at all costs. You are the flank of the entire Union Army. Uh, that's a much more clear uh, set of uh, directions, and it's a clearly defined end state. And so I think uh, we can make the case that... Uh, uh, that uh, Colonel Chamberlain is far more animated and directed by that clear language. And so that's something that then as a contrast works well. And then the other part of it, of course, look how far down he is in the organization. He, Chamberlain, a regimental commander within a brigade, within a division, within a corps of an army. And again, in modern uh, corporate uh, parlance, where everybody is expected to be a fully productive contributing member of the team, this idea that people at the front line and their understanding and ability to execute uh, really resonates with uh, corporate leaders. When when you and I were at Gettysburg, again, this is, must have been 10 years ago now, uh, I remember in the aftermath, uh, somebody, somehow the the idea of these kind of trips, there was, some, there was some publicity about it, some stories periodically, you'll see something in, mm -hmm. even something like the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, the popular Civil War magazines uh, got news that uh, business leaders were visiting battlefields to learn lessons of the past. And the result was a very unhappy editorial that took the, the view that this was a sort of uh, desecration that that uh, Chamberlain didn't hold Little Round Top to raise next quarter's uh, stock results. You know, he might have done it for freedom or union or mm -hmm. uh, survival of the nation, but but it was sort of prostituting his sacrifice to to uh, use it to teach business leaders. And yes. uh, I, I have my own thoughts on that. I'm curious to know what you think about that. Well, uh, I have to admit that I'm really not very uh, sentimental about past wars. Uh, we always make a point of finishing our contemplations uh, in a cemetery, uh, whether it's at Normandy or Gettysburg or Shiloh uh, or Atlanta, as far as that goes. Uh, and we always make sure that we... Uh, 
uh, have given careful thought to the sacrifices of those who who were engaged. So uh, it's not as if uh, we uh, we don't recognize that we are dealing with something that has enormous uh, emotional uh, dimensions. But um, I don't think Chamberlain thought, thinking, gee, this is going to be a great place for him to put a monument. <laughs> I mean, when he came back, he was very uh, critical of exactly where the monument was and should have been and what had happened to the train in the meantime. But uh, the motivation in both armies uh, in our Civil War was to, uh, I think, uh, do what was best in the framework that the leaders had laid out for them and to do one's part. And... Uh, we go to battlefields because the consequences of decision and the actions that men and women take are uh, so clear and are also so well documented. There's really no place to hide. And uh, there's a number of reasons, then, and I think uh, businessmen ought to look at Chamberlain. First, he's a citizen soldier. He's doing what he's sees his best uh, without a lifetime experience in the regular army. And that helps them think about the fact that uh, they may be called to do things that they haven't exactly been trained to do, and it might actually be defensive nation. Uh, then second, I think it's useful for all of us to think about the documentation that occurs. When he gets done with that action, he sits down and writes a report. And frankly, uh, none of us would know where the monument belonged or what happened there if officers like Chamberlain had not made an effort to record their experience. And many business leaders begin to get a little uncomfortable when an Army officer tells them about the investment that the Army makes yet today in documenting its actions, uh, whether they're dramatic combat actions or routine maturation of plans in order to close a base or to start a new project. So there's another thing going on there, uh, which I think uh, Chamberlain would, would be very proud of. It's his words that speak across the century plus to those people who uh, stand in his battle line. And so uh, I'm not uh, I'm not bothered by it. The other thing I would say is that uh, if you spend time at Gettysburg, you know that a lot of people will invest maybe an hour or an hour and twenty minutes at the battlefield after they discover they can't see it all in twenty. These business leaders uh, routinely will uh, spend a couple of nights in Gettysburg and the equivalent of about an eight or nine hour day out tromping around. And whatever intentions they may have come with, uh, the the battlefield exerts its own power. It does indeed. And uh, I think often they learn lessons they had no inkling they they were going to get. Well, we have to take another short break. We'll be back in just a minute with our guest, Brigadier General Harold W. Nelson, on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. 